Well, a very warm welcome tonight on this not too chilly night. Um, my name is Lisa and I'm part of Gospel Conversations and we along with St John's Glebe here are co-hosting this evening and before we begin I'd like to invite Uncle Ray Minikin to do the acknowledgement of country and then Michael will pray for us. And just some house rules. The toilets are out that door or this door here and just keep to the left of the building and it's the last door on the right. And also there's another toilet inside the building and the, you can go in through there and to, turn to the right. You'll find the, the toilets there. And if by chance there is a fire, exit, exit and exit, three exits. Don't rush them. Come, let's uh, acknowledge. We here at St. John's acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and in particular the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. They are the first and traditional custodians of the land on which this church and its buildings now stand. And we acknowledge our gratitude that we share this land today, our sorrow for the cost of that sharing, and our hope that we can move towards a place of justice and partnership together. Thank you. Well, it's my privilege to open in prayer, so why don't you bow your heads and, and pray with me. Heavenly Father, God of love, you are the creator and sustainer of all things and all people in every tribe and culture and nation. May your spirit be with us this evening. Grant wisdom to those who are speaking and ears to hear for those of us who are listening. May we bring glory to Jesus, who shows us who you are and reconciles us with you. Please let there be a spirit of reconciliation that flows from this church tonight and to our nation. Guide us to respond with compassion and courage to what we hear, and that this year we ourselves might become glimpses of the healing, forgiveness, love and justice that our lives might be a foretaste of the new creation which you promise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm uh, just going to do a brief introduction. I'm going to introduce our speakers tonight and set the scene a little bit for the evening. It is timely, isn't it, in this year to have an evening uh, to further our understanding of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture, especially in light of the referendum that is coming up. Tonight is not on the voice per se. It is on us better understanding Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander spirituality and the resonances with the gospel. So I'm going to introduce our speakers tonight. Firstly, we have here David Bentley Hart. It is our enormous privilege to have him in Sydney with us, a man widely regarded as one of the most influential orthodox theologians in the English-speaking world. He's a philosopher, social critic, 
fiction author, author of, I think we worked out it was 23 books. Uh, many of you will have read The Experience of God or Atheist Delusions, and he writes not only theology and philosophy, but he writes on literature, music, history, mythology, consciousness, and one of his novels, Roland in Moonlight, some of you might have read, is one of my favourite books of all time, co-authored with his dog, Roland. When we invited David here for our conference, which is not this weekend, but the following weekend, um, we asked him what else, he, what he was interested in doing in Australia. This was his first visit to Australia. And one of the things he said was that he'd like to better understand some of our First Nations cultures. And so we thought, well, we can organise a meeting with David and an Aboriginal and an Islander elder and pastors um, and to discuss spiritual things. And then we realised, wouldn't it be great to be a fly on the wall on that discussion? And that was the seed of tonight, so we're all flies on the wall <laughs> for this panel discussion that we're going to have tonight. We also have the privilege of Pastor Ray Minikin here. Many of you will know Uncle Ray. He and his wife Sharon lead Scarred Tree Indigenous Ministries here at St John's Glebe. Ray is a descendant of the Kabi Kabi Nation and the Gurren Gurren Nation of Southeast Queensland, as well as of South Sea Islander people. He has been and remains a passionate advocate for Aboriginal and Islander people in an extraordinary number of contexts. Ray's CV goes on for pages. <laughs> um, World Vision, St Andrew's Cathedral School, several universities, and recently he has brought to Australia NATES, which is a university for Indigenous people to do postgraduate theological studies. So he's brought that to Australia. So Ray, we're honoured to have you with us as well. And we also have the great privilege of Gabriel Barney over here on the end, who with his wife Temena, who's sitting up in the middle there, has flown 3,000 kilometres to be with us from the very top of Australia, the Torres Strait. Um, it's just a, the very tip of Queensland under New Guinea up there. There are 17 inhabited islands and Gabriel and Mena have flown down from Thursday Island. Gabriel is from the island of Mabuyag, it's his, his tribal island, and he's a direct descendant of Atebari, who is the Kuiku Garka, I'm trying to pronounce this properly, um, or the head man of the major tribe of Wagadagam in the Torres Strait. If you ask Gabriel to describe his cultural identity, he'll say his tribal totem is the crocodile, his tribal wind is the northeast wind, and his tribal constellation is the shark. Gabriel is also a passionate, tireless advocate for his people. He's a consultant, a cultural mentor, advisor to many organisations, and he's deputy mayor in Torres Shire, his church elder and pastor in Wangai Family Ministry. Gabriel and Mena have been close friends of Michael and I for, um, for many years, and here in Sydney, we don't get to hear the Torres Strait Islander perspective very much. And so I think it's just an enormous honour to have Gabriel here, to hear firsthand, because it is a distinct culture from Aboriginal culture, although there are many relational connections between the two. Tony Goldsby-Smith here is our facilitator. He founded Gospel Conversations, who, who have organised tonight and um, brought David to Australia. And he has diverse interests. His initial studies were in English literature. 
He did his PhD. My, my summary version is it's on Aristotelian rhetoric applied to the business world. A um, bit more complex than that, but that will do. And he has spent much of his working life facilitating conversations in the corporate world. So he's a great person to facilitate a discussion. This is gonna be awesome. <laughs> Look at who we've got here. Let me quickly set the scene for tonight. If you've ever read accounts of the early white settlers' interactions with both Aboriginal and Islander people, you know it's sobering reading. At times it's distressing reading. Especially that it's not only governments who were complicit in a lot of cultural destruction, but churches as well. One of the best metaphors I've heard is um, that the churches of the colony and the missionaries were offering good food, the message of Jesus, God became man, but it was wrapped in layers of cling wrap, layers of cultural baggage of white European post-enlightenment culture. And those layers also blinded the eyes of many of those Christians to see the testimony about God that was already in those cultures. And entire cultures, entire customs were just summarily dismissed as pagan. And it was a tragic loss, but it is starting to be rediscovered. And as we'll hear tonight, there was a testimony of God. There is a testimony of God in these cultures. And that makes so much sense for how many First Nations people have accepted the message of Jesus. They recognised God become flesh. And I must say, as I've been, I've had this awesome privilege of listening to Ray and Gabriel in the last few days. And I feel like my understanding of Jesus has been so enriched by listening to, to about him through their eyes. Quickly want to read Act 17 as a scriptural starting point for us. And you might recall here that Paul is in Athens. He's preaching about Jesus. He's surrounded by the religion of Greek culture. And he sees an altar to an unknown God. And this is what Paul says. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations, all the clans, all the tribes, all the territories we can add, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So Paul acknowledges their seeking of God, the, the great God, the one true God. And, and then he further explains the message of Jesus. In Acts 14, he says, God has not left the nations without a testimony of himself. And that's what we're going to be discussing tonight. The testimony about the great creator, true God, that is in the cultures, the traditions, the customs of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. It's brilliant to have David here to help us explore the theological underpinnings of this. Finally, Ray was telling me earlier that the Archbishop of Canterbury, 
takes a great interest in the topic of reconciliation. And his encouragement for us, and this is my encouragement to us um, as well as we listen, is to have an attitude of three things, to be curious, to be present, and allow ourselves to reimagine. So with that, I'm gonna hand over to Tony. Uh, thanks, Lisa. I'll open up by just explaining the flow of the conversation. Um, I make no promises we'll keep to it, but nonetheless, um, as, to, as to some extent the conductor of the orchestra, I've got to have some vague idea about where we're going in my mind. Really, there's a large question um, which will frame tonight, which that question is simply, and Lisa, you've already uh, alluded to it, you know, what are the resonances, interactive resonances between indigenous spirituality and culture and the gospel? Because as, uh, that's all right, thank you. Um, as Lisa said, the initial approach to the indigenous people was very much an either-or approach. You know, here's Western Christianity, um, your culture is pagan, choose between them. Um, we're looking now at something much more interactive and the interaction and alignment uh, as the conversation unfolds, I think you'll see we'll go two ways. Um, in other words, it isn't just a matter of seeing in the indigenous culture glimmers of glory and light and truth. Actually, it's a matter of how if, but if we had but listened to that, we might have got closer to the truth. Uh, the gospel we were shoving down their throats was not exactly rich. Um, so that, so that's the general direction. Um, in, in gospel conversations, we're pretty committed to probably two broad things. First of all, what we like to call the creation gospel, a sense of uh, that the gospel begins in Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. And you'll see how much that resonates with our indigenous brethren here but also an, a, a sort of an epistemology of inquiry rather than dogma. We have to open our minds to get them stretched and actually, actually that's what Christianity should be about. Unfortunately, it's more often than not more defensive, um, as if, you know, here's a set of dogmas, uh, let's protect them. So this is much more about inquiry. And uh, so there's gonna be an alignment going on we're going to actually dive down and listen to both Ray and Gabriel talk about some of the cultural practices that they um, feel are sacred, um, sort of pre-incarnations of the gospel, and they will take us into that world, and it's gonna be quite fascinating. When we, I mean, we rehearsed this this afternoon, and it was quite fascinating. The only thing is it went for that two hours, so I don't know how long we're gonna be here tonight. Um, so, so that'll be very interesting for us. But we have David with us, and David um, quite independently has re 
I don't think there's anything you haven't researched, David. But baseball's at the top. Yeah. Uh, there's no game on tonight, so David's got his mind on the job. Um, uh, you have a great interest in the North American um, First Peoples, and you've certainly studied how much you've mastered one of their languages, I don't know, one of the many languages you read or write. Um, so David has a, a, you know, a pre-existent interest in the spirituality of the indigenous people. But we're going to ask um, uh, David tonight to bring, as it were, like a theological reflection on what he hears. And, and in particular, one of his heroes and mine, the great Maximus the Confessor. Um, in our upcoming conference, um, a lot of the themes we talk about tonight will be developed more fully there. Um, in one of the five modules of conversation David and I will have, but the, the sort of uh, light on the hill in that part of the conversation will be the extraordinary vision of God, creation and the gospel that Maximus, the confessor, um, developed um, in the seventh century, 600s? Sixth century, really, but yes. In the sixth century, really, okay, cool. So that should be fun, sixth century, indigenous, they're both old stuff, we can learn a lot. <laughs> Everybody ready for, the, ready for the ride? Yeah, cool, okay. Um, well, let's begin. Um, and I wanna begin with you, Gabriel, because as, uh, as Lisa said, you're from the Torres Strait. And I think, is any, who here's been there? So not, not many of us, um, can you just, Tell us, take us to the Torres Strait. Tell us a little bit about where it is, about your culture, um, you know, your, your story and history and what's unique about it. Yes, thank you for that, Tony. First of all, I'm going to say that I'm acknowledging everyone here. I'm going to say that I'm going to acknowledging the custodians of the land. Before I continue, um, but yeah, um, uh, Torres Straits, uh, over 100 islands scattered between uh, the tip of uh, Cape York, the tip of Australia, uh, and uh, Papua New Guinea. So uh, we actually have the only the border in the country, the international border uh, that lies between the the Northern Islands and the uh, the mainland, uh, Papua New Guinea. Uh, which is well, only a few kilometers. You can see people walking on the villages and doing their things on a clear day. Uh, but uh, uh, the islands, um, we have about 17 to, to 18 islands that are, which are inhabited uh, with councils, uh, uh, Aboriginal uh, tourist islander councils running the islands. And uh, I'm actually based on Thursday Island. I'm from one of the outer islands. Uh, Mabiag, so we have uh, cluster groups that's uh, uh, broken into um, into clusters, but they really nation groups. So we have the, the eastern islands um, uh, at the edge of the barrier reef, uh, where um, Uncle Eddie Mabo comes from. Uh, you're familiar with the uh, the Mabo okay, decision that was handed down in '92. It's from the eastern island group. Then we have the top western uh, group. Uh, and then we have the Central Islands and uh, the Western Island group towards uh, the, the tip of uh, uh, 
the tip of Cape York really as at the tip of Australia, but Australia actually ends on our last Northern Ireland where the border is, that's where Australia ends. So we're part of Queensland. And uh, uh, Thursday Island where I am based now is the main administration center. Uh, that was the, the main colonial outpost uh, that was moved from Somerset uh, in uh, uh, 1877 um, and established there. So it's like a mini Canberra up there, Thursday Island, because uh, over 50 Commonwealth government agencies and uh, state government agencies are all based there. And they all um, service uh, the outer islands and the region. And, uh, and we have a few political structures, which is other local councils, and we, we have the Torres Strait Regional Authority, uh, uh, which is similar to ATSIC, uh, regional body, but ATSIC, Aboriginal Torres Strait Island, uh, Torres Strait Islander Commission was closed down uh, by the government, but GSRA, we still have access to Canberra and Commonwealth presence where we are. Yeah, now, one thing, Gabriel, you could help us with is that <coughs> in what ways is the Torres Strait Islanders community spiritually, culturally, a bit unique and not the same as, uh, as mainland Indigenous, or, or are you just the same? Or... Uh, yeah, we, we have a lot of uh, similarities, or, but I think it was the um, embracing of Christianity, I think that sort of uh, is a bit uh, uh, different to some of the experiences that happened on the mainland here. Uh, but uh, we have... Uh, 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 an annual celebration of what we call uh, the coming of the light, which uh, goes back to 1871 when the missionaries arrived up in the Torres Strait Islands on one of the eastern islands, uh, Darnley Island, on the 1st of July. So the region up there, there were many experiences on, on in different ones in each uh, in each island community, but generally. Uh, the Torres Strait Islanders, they embraced Christianity. And uh, one of the reasons was because of some of the similarities in the, in the Bible that, uh, uh, that was similar to some of our cultural practices as well. Hmm. Interesting. And, um, yeah, so let's just uh, move to you, Ray. Um, We've got the, we've used the phrase a lot in preparation for this conversation of, you right? I seem to be a problem, Daniel. It's very relaxed. It's good. I'm relaxed? Oh, cool. Good to know. Um, indigenous spirituality, and um, I want to explore that, but Ray, First of all, and this is probably a little bit sobering, it was sobering to me to hear it tonight. You talked about two curses that you felt were on your peoples. Um, can you explain that to everybody? Yeah, sure. First of all, uh, I just want to acknowledge that uh, Jesus didn't get off the boat in 1788. He was already here. You just didn't recognise him. And you still don't. 
got a long way to go. But uh, <clears throat> one of the challenges that we face as Indigenous peoples are these curses from the past. One happened in 1901 as there was a big discussion about the uh, uh, forming of the new federal constitution. And there was a politician from uh, South Australia. He was an American and he was also a politician. His name was King O'Malley. There's a pub in Canberra named after him. But he was the one who said this about my people back that, at that time. He says that there is no scientific evidence that the Aborigine is a human being at all. Then they created the Constitution. <laughs> what a curse. What a lie. But then we have the religious sector too, with, with uh, Samuel Marston out here at Parramatta, who said this about my people back in the 1830s. He says that, that the Aborigines are the most degraded of the human race. The time has not yet arrived for them to receive the great blessings of civilization and the knowledge of Christianity. Now he's the guy who went over there and made treaties and helped the Maoris make treaties with the, with, the, with the crown. But for us, a curse, non-recognizable. And we've been trying to overcome or reverse that curse. And we still are trying to do that. And the referendum is coming up and perhaps that might help us to reverse the curses that are upon us. There are only just two, but there's so many others. But just remember, in this context, when we're talking about uh, Aboriginal people and spirituality, those curses hang over us continuously. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sobering, uh, sobering, Ray. Uh, do mention there was one fellow back there you mentioned who spoke out against, what did he say? Something like Jesus wouldn't get through, was it? What? Oh, yeah, that's when they were discussing the uh, <clears throat> Citizenship Act in the first constitution. And uh, <clears throat> when O'Malley said these particular words, um, he said, well, maybe even Jesus couldn't get through, <laughs> wouldn't be allowed into Australia uh, because of the ways in which they formed the Citizenship Act at that time, because that's the starting uh, point of white Australia policy with the exclusion of all people from different races, including Jesus. Yes. Um, well, let's, let's go, Ray, continuing now into the world that um, had been so spurned. And um, one of the, the themes that certainly in gospel conversations we pursue a lot um, is that all of us, us white Anglo-Saxon or in Western civilization are really burdened with a view of creation. We don't know we are, but it's a post-enlightenment view of creation um, that is, I think, toxic. And uh, certainly David is somebody who's argued against it very profoundly over the years. But it's that creation's a machine. It's a scientific machine. It will yield to, uh, to a nuts and bolts analysis, and that's the nature of it. 
Um, now, Ray, that view um, is a view that is in stark contrast to the Indigenous view of sacred space. So could you please take us a little bit inside the Indigenous view of creation in contrast to this it's a machine view? A good starting point is uh, to understand that for Indigenous theologians, our starting point is in Genesis 1, not in Genesis 3, because everything that God created is good, including us. And that's our starting point. And if you look at that particular passage there, you know, Beritit Elohim, in the beginning, or as I'd like to think of it, is among the beginnings, inside the beginnings, God created. And for us, that fits into the ways in which indigenous people see what you fellas call the dreaming or what we call our creation stories, the ways in which all of these things came into being through our creation heroes and uh, created our song lines, created all the sacred sites that we see. All of those things are, are coming out of that beginning point. And uh, if I was to sort of uh, look at even John's Gospel, chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. Now, if I was a Greek person, I'd understand Logos and all the meanings are associated with it, but I'm not Greek. And I don't study Greek. But if I was to change that word to suit my understanding of what John is trying to say there, I would put that... I would say it this way, I'd say, in the beginning was the story, not the dreaming, but the story. And the story was with God. And the story is God. And it's the story that came and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And that word, that's the English word that I would use rather than dreaming, because dreaming, you know, seems to have us drifting off into some kind of ethereal experience, but it's got nothing to do with that. And indigenous cultures are much more inclusive, and that's why I prefer the word story than dreaming. That's me. So that we could understand that we all are a part of this amazing story that God created. In the beginning, God created this story, and we're a part of it. Whether it's this microphone, or whether it's me, or any other object or person on the planet. And all the things that are happening right now around the whole world are a part of that story. So it's very universal rather than contained within us. And religion tries to put us into those categories. And an old Aboriginal elder told me once, he said, you know, Ray, religion is for those who believe in hell. Spirituality is for those who have been there. I better stop there. Otherwise, <laughs> uh, you've given us a lot to think about. So let me just feed it back. You know, the, in contrast to this over, overly scientific view of creationist machine, 
you're saying that the indigenous cultures, uh, I'm hearing, would more say creation's a story we're inhabiting as, and, and a sacred space. Is that fair, Ray? Yes, yeah. everything is there, part of, part of who we are and we are a part of it. And uh, um, I'll let Gabriel go on, on about totems and how they reflect us. But just to mention that Jesus also had totems. He was an indigenous man. And so he came from the tribe of Judah. He was a tribal man. He lived under oppression as well. He was a colonized Jew. So we'll get to that in a moment, Ray. There's one other point, though, that I think you mentioned to me in the worldview, uh, the spiritual worldview of the indigenous people, which I think is very telling. Um, certainly, you said, as far as our, our mindset, the gospel, the story begins in Genesis 1, inhabiting Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. But the other thing you mentioned, which I'd like you to say something about, is that we've individual, uh, we Western Protestant tend to individualise the gospel, whereas the indigenous mindset sees the gospel as a, a relation with the cosmos, the whole cosmos. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think that's the the greatest crime of Western theology or Western Christianity is that it has reduced the whole notion of for God so loved the world, for God so loved me as an individual. And that bringing the whole of the cosmos into me only has, I think, been the most challenging, difficult concept for all indigenous people to grasp. Because we believe that God created it all, he loves it all, he continues to love it, and because we are his children, we're supposed to love it too. But we seem to hate it, <laughs> hate God's creation. Or, you know, as I think uh, brother here was saying, it's more mechanical, we, we look at it through scientific eyes and not through the eyes of a spirit. And so, yeah, we, we've... Western theology and Western Christianity has reduced the message of the gospel down to me. Jesus just loves me. And I think that's a crime against the gospel and it's a crime against God's story to all of human, humankind. So Gabriel, uh, if I asked you that question on the spirituality that's innate in your culture and your heritage, what would you say about that? As I'm listening to the uh, discussion, and uh, you know, I'm thinking about the scriptures, uh, especially uh, Genesis, about the environment, um, and uh, also reflecting on uh, uh, the scripture from Colossians, uh, chapter one, uh, where it speaks about Jesus and his preeminence, he is before all things. Uh, all things were created by him and for him, through him, and uh, in him all things hold together. Just those scriptures go into my mind, but the, the, the environment in our culture is really important as uh, relating to Genesis, how God made sure he prepared the environment before putting man in that environment. And it's all about relationships. Uh, our relationship uh, with God, but our relationship 
with things that we have around us and how we um, relate to those things and uh, how we relate to God. Um, you know, so I guess in that sense, you know, um, uh, Uncle Ray just mentioned some of our, our totemic affiliations, but uh, it, it's all to do with, with everything around us. And it's, it's that relationship, that through those relationships with the environment and with people, uh, and a relationship uh, ultimately with who is behind all of that. Uh, I think that's where the spirituality comes from. Uh, yes. Us, yeah. So very relational, very connected, yes. um, yeah. as part of being really an integrated picture of reality yes. rather than just a personal one. Yes. Well, David, um, we, uh, we're, we're glad to have you here. And um, as you've been listening to this, um, We've talked a lot about, you and I, about Maximus the Confessor and his enormous vision of the, the integration between creation and God. Um, as you're listening to what Ray and Gabriel are saying, how, uh, what would your comments be and how would you connect that back to the, some of the patristic vision of the created order versus the sort of post-enlightenment Christianity? Oh, um... Hello. <laughs> uh, first of all, just, uh, how delightful it is to be here. Uh, I should say that first. Um, yes, uh, it, it's, it's curious. Um, I, 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 if I could retreat just a moment, I mean, what was the Christianity that came in the late 18th century to these shores? It was a, a Western, largely reformed Christianity that came in the aftermath of the 17th century, which probably was the single most spiritually disastrous <laughs> century for Christian self-understanding in Europe, right? You talked about nature as a machine. It was in the 17th century that the mechanistic philosophy was born, that is, as a project for the sciences, right? That um, we could investigate nature as if it weren't a story being told or uh, a coherent uh, order of spiritual and rational relations with, a, with an in intrinsic beginning, middle, and an end, you know, a... a uh, uh, in Aristotelian terms, without formal and final causality, rather simply as a series of brute events, machines without any in, intrinsic meaning, um, uh, mechanistic processes. And uh, this quickly metastasized, right, from a picture, uh, from, a, from a method within the sciences to a picture of reality as such. And at first, the way this accommodated the old language of God and the soul was to create a dualism, to say that nature, physical nature, is a machine. Uh, the soul is a sort of ghostly inhabitant that tenants the machine, but shares nothing intrinsic with it. And God is even more removed as sort of the cosmic mechanic outside who created the machine but in, otherwise, in no other way is involved in its reality and its reality uh, 
is not involved in them. This is a peculiarly alien picture of reality. It certainly had nothing, has nothing to do with the Christianity of earlier centuries, of late antiquity or the Middle Ages, and yet it quickly became the dominant picture of reality that even Christians presumed that what I am is a disembodied soul lodged within a machine. And uh, what God is, is rather than the life and spirit and reality in which creation moves and has its, its existence, uh, is some sort of uh, detached, disembodied presence out there and that all of the only things of spiritual consequence that I have to consider are the relations, is the relation that exists between that ghost within me, who is myself, and that ghost beyond the cosmos, who is my God. And creation itself becomes merely the, the, the empty uh, occasion of that relationship. This is a deeply perverted view of reality. Uh, and by the late 18th century, it was what we called Christianity. That's not, when you talk about Maximus, it was a radically different vision. Uh, he's very much, in some ways, the um, consummation of the patristic period, that is the, the, the late antique period in Christian thought, which gave us basically the entire body of Christian doctrine and, and biblical exegesis. and spirituality in its first great golden age. Uh, and for, for Maximus, yes, the story begins in Genesis 1 because God creates not a machine that he's then going to populate with ghosts, but rather expresses himself in infinite variety and beauty and calls forth into being a cosmos that as a whole is destined to be glorified in him. And in the midst of this, uh, creates living souls by breathing his own spirit into them, his own neshama in Hebrew or panoe in the, in the Greek of the Septuagint. And all of it is destined for union with him. That's the story that he thinks is the center of the Christian tale, not uh, the belated rescue of a few miscreant children who've wickedly broken the rules and as a result must suffer eternal perdition unless in a sort of super erogatory way uh, God patches together plan B, but rather that from the beginning all things were intended for union with him, and were created, therefore, in the incarnation. That the incarnation is the purpose of creation. The union of creation with God in Christ is the ground of creation. And it's funny, you talked about the story. You know, um, Logos, of course, as you know, has almost infinite number of possible meanings and acceptations. Uh, it doesn't just mean word, and certainly not by, by late antiquity, in which it had become, it come to mean any number of things. It could mean mind, it could mean the rational structure of a thing, it could mean its substance, its nature. But it also, and for, for Maximus, clearly means the full expression 
of uh, or the true account that God gives of himself. That in the eternal son, the perfect, the hidden depths of the, of the father are made infinitely radiantly manifest. And within the logos, according to Maximus, are all the, the, the logi, all the, the little words that are creation, that each of us and everything is a logos within the logos, a story within the one story, which is the true story of God and the true story of creation. Mm-hmm. So everything we've been talking about would have been perfectly intelligible to Maximus as entirely, not only consonant with, but a necessary foundation for an understanding of the gospel. So how did we reach the point where it seemed something alien, strange, or um, if nothing else, a kind of quaint pagan patois uh, that has nothing to do with the real matter of Christianity, which is, do I get to go to heaven? So David, um, with your... Wait, I haven't finished ranting yet. (laughs) No, no, go on. You know, feel free to I, I'm still struggling against jet lag, so know, forgive, forgive the flippancy. So, yeah. no, um, well, David, just to summarise it up, as you have in your you know, general command of euphemism and careful language, um, <laughs> essentially uh, it would have been better the other way around if the uh, early church people who came here had actually done a lot more listening and accommodating to the indigenous story, they might have got a a lot closer to the gospel. They might have been hearing something that sounded a lot more like the cosmic vision of the early church. Yeah. And uh, so, thank you. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you would like to hear all that again, but (laughs) um, you can, because we're recording all of this. Um, And, uh, or else you could read Maximus, but probably I'd listen to David first because Maximus, he's a bit dense, isn't he? He was very clever. How could you say that? <laughs> uh, but, but notoriously difficult to read, yeah. yeah. Well, famously, his great works are called The Ambiguum or The Ambiguities and Difficulties. Ambiguum. So <laughs> there you have it. Um, that is a quite breathtaking, I think, paradigm shift as to how we should be listening to the indigenous spirituality. What we want to do now for the next part of the talk, which will really probably be our major part, is to actually dive a little bit deeper, because if you're anything like me, you would be well inclined to a message like this, but I would not understand the specifics. The kind of, uh, you said the logoi, uh, that great phrase from Maximus, the shafts of light within the indigenous culture that, um, we can look at as, you know, really burning bushes of pre-incarnate glory. Gabriel, we're going to start with you and ask you to just take us through into the world of totems. I mean, it's not, we know that's actually not an Indigenous word, but you, you can talk about that. Can you talk to us a little bit about the, the culture and practice of totems in your, in your world? Yeah. Thank you. Um... Yeah, I think I think that word. Uh, uh, well, we use that word totem, uh, uh, but I think it comes from somewhere in North America as well. Um, but 
it's the one we can relate to, you know, I guess all around, uh, 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 all around the world, I might say, but, but in our culture, we refer to, the, to our totems. Uh, our language word is Aogad. Aogad or Buayuroi. Buayuroi. So it's, uh, uh, it's an animal or a plant. And it's a, a, a major and, and, and a central part of, of, of our culture, uh, the, uh, these totems, because they, uh, uh, they operate the law and the order, uh, uh, and they organize our society. Uh, and I'll just explain that a little bit more. Um, it looks at how our society is set up, the social organization, uh, the different clan groups, their responsibilities, uh, and even their behavior and their practices, uh, our relationship with other clans, uh, uh, you know, even, even things like marriages, uh, in our clan boundaries, you know, um, we listen to that scripture uh, from Acts when Paul writes about uh, uh, how we all came from that one, um, uh, you know, through one blood we came about and then he placed us in our, uh, in our locations and he set the boundaries. Well, our totems, they are uh, all responsible to identifying our boundaries and, and that. When the missionaries uh, came uh, in the 1800s, uh, they thought uh, that the totems were objects of worship. Uh, you know, um, their interpretation was that. So they uh, everything it looked like an idol or something. They well, thought that, that yes. was yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, so you know, during that time, anything that was to do with our culture was seen as, uh, as pagan, as, as mentioned here, earlier on. And so all of that was taken uh, away from us. Uh, some of those uh, uh, sacred places and sites, uh, the objects that were there were burnt. Uh, well, they said they were pagan, we're going to burn them, but later we found out that uh, they spotted up in museums halfway across the world. <laughs> and uh, some of, most of them were still there. Um, I think your father had a lot to do with bringing them back. Yes, uh, he went in the, in the uh, early 90s so, and uh, he had a look at uh, some of those objects. But very central to, to our lives, uh, that they weren't uh, idols or objects of worship, but they were all about identification and uh, uh, our communal communal strength and solidarity uh, around how we uh, as a people, uh, as clans, as tribes and nations, how we survived. Uh, some of those practices, um, if I can just only mention one of the ceremonies that we do, where we do have a sacramental meal, um, uh, and uh, this is all led by the clans and the totems, uh, uh, and it's done seasonal. Uh, we do harvest uh, festivals where all the clans come together on my island. We have four major uh, main totems on Mabuyag, where I come from. 
the major totem is the crocodile, kadal, and then we have the shovel-nosed uh, shark, which we call kaigas, and we have the jugong, which we call dangal, and we have the snake clan, which we call tab. So these clan groups, they come together uh, uh, to share a communal meal, and the different clans, they have different roles. So, so j just before we go on, just to be clear, so take the crocodile. Um, if that was my totem, I wouldn't, uh, that's me and my group, but I wouldn't have a second and a third one. Uh, the other clans might have, you said, the, say the snake or, yeah. The, in, in my island, Mabuyag, uh, the crocodile is the major totem and, and, and that's the main one. Um, the snake, the dugong, and the shovel nor shark, uh, they are separate in themselves, but they all come under the, the major totem because they are uh, like minor clans, minor so, clan groups. So if we went to one of them, so the, the shark or what, what would be the characteristics of that? Does that explain something to do with the, the characteristics of that clan or? Yes, um, and uh, if you would go to the, the shovel nor shark people, they are very humble people. Uh, they are very uh, respectful and they, um, but you hardly notice them because they are the type of uh, uh, people that are always in the background. They are our mediators and peacemakers. Uh, so naturally people are born into that clan and that's, that's their traits. You know, um, you can't explain that, but the, the crocodile people, which is uh, myself, uh, the Crocodile Clan is all about leadership, and uh, most uh, all the warriors, most of our warriors came out from their tribe as well, and chiefs from the Crocodile Clan. Uh, and then you see the, the Snake Clan, which is in the center of our island, they are the medicine people. Um, uh, they are spiritual people, and, and they look after the burial places. Um, and these are the ones they communicate with the spirit world. And uh, the Dugong people uh, from the Dugong clan, they are our hunters uh, and our navigators, you know. Um, yeah. And all these, the three minor clans, when they do their work, especially the, the hunting and gathering of food from garden produce, uh, uh, that's all uh, taken, uh, they look after the people from the major tribe, the, the crocodile tribe, and, and they feed that people because, because of the leadership uh, that exists there. So we have a, a sacred gathering, which we call the Kod, K-O-D, and, and that's where our elders sit. And the crocodile people, they, uh, you know, they are the significant member in that, and they usually make the last decision. But, uh, but that's how the, the clans organize and that's how, uh, uh, you know, uh, our, our society was a very ordered society, very ordered and civilized society. We were not uncivilized, uh, but we survived for thousands of years under, under those totems. Yes, but unfortunately the missionaries just saw that as idolatry and pagan. But when you were talking about the use of the totems, I mean, I've just been through Europe and in the museums, I've seen emblems of uh, 
rulers that feel to me a lot like their totems, really, eagles and horses, uh, which were about their identity and uh, the, the character of uh, the nation they built. And uh, so, um, that, well, that, that's really fascinating. We'll come back to the ceremonies a little bit more uh, in a moment. But Ray, Ray, the, uh, the totems, uh, can you give your angle on this, your comment on it? Uh, was it very similar for, for you, or was this... Just Torres Strait. Oh, no, no, it's very similar, right across the country. Here, uh, one of the most important, or two, two most important totems that you would recognise as a part of the Australian uh, constitution is the emu and the kangaroo. Now, in Aboriginal uh, philosophy, they represent law and teaching the ways in which the Bible is law and teaching for the Israelites as well as for Christianity. Law and teaching. <clears throat> now, they're the two things you'll find on Parliament House. The kangaroo and the emu. So you can imagine the confusion that our people have when they use our totems, those two totems, to represent law and teaching yet practice something completely different when it comes to us. And so it confused us. Why are they stealing our totems and then using them or weaponizing them against us? So totems are very important for us. We know who they are, we know what they are. Even Jesus had totems. He called himself the water of life, the bread of life. Mm. The light of life and all of these other things that he recognised that as a part of him so he could share all of those things with all of us. So we understand those things much more deeper because of how we respond to it. I know one of my totems is water. I have a responsibility towards that. And if I was living in some parts of this country here, I would have to make sure that our community had rain and water so that they could survive. I've got to protect the water. I've got to make sure that our people live with good, clean water. A bit difficult these days, but with all the mining going on. But that was my responsibility and still is. And so that's what totems are to us. They're not just something that we worship. It's not a prominent image. It's responsibility. It's everything that we are in order to make sure that our community can function and survive. And I must say, David, uh, this is a very dangerous conversation here in the Anglican Church because I know if you're a conservative Christian, we'll be talking all kinds of uh, false doctrines and stuff. And yet when I look at the Western culture, it's more pagan than we are. But it won't admit to its own wrongdoings and its own crimes and its own ways in which it's destroying itself. And so I'm very, very conscious of that. And so I'm very, very, I'm trying my hardest not to divulge too much. I don't, I keep going, Ray, don't worry about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Might as well, eh? <laughs> and sacred sites and song lines are really important for us. 
because uh, the sacred sites across the land, they hold great, incredible significance for our people. They tell so many different and very important stories, both spiritually as well as socially, about who we are and how we connect to each other. Mm. I can't do without those particular stories. It's impossible to live without them. So when I go back to my country, I know when I see, you know, the, uh, 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 the rivers up there and the mountains, I'm home. They're calling me home. They're saying, welcome home, son. Yeah. Because I'm a part of that and they are a part of me. And when I go out into the desert, the same thing. Welcome home, son. And because it's, it's, it's a it's, life. It's, it's sounding, Ray, very, it's a two-way traffic. I mean, it's a way of these natural, almost metaphors, that's what I'm hearing, but totems which are naming me and giving, giving identity, but also our responsibility to care for that aspect of the natural world. David, um, when we talked about this this afternoon, are you awake? I'm awake, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, when, we, when we talked about this this afternoon, you took us to North America, and you know, the similarities with the uh, totems uh, in North America. Uh, can you talk to us about Well, I mean, obviously the word actually originally comes uh, from North America, totemic cultures, where uh, the totems function in many of the same ways. They're circles of kinship, for one thing, uh, kinship not necessarily only with persons in your own family, but those who have the same totem, but also kinship with the actual animal or plant or natural kind, so that, uh, you know, if your totem is, say, a bison or an eagle, then the eagle is actually part of your family, and you're part of the eagle's family, and you're integrated into, into the natural world, and, but also, you recognize that these are that these natural forms are also forms in which God or Wakantanka uh, or Ichimanatu uh, guides your soul and and incorporates you into into a particular order of responsibilities and ties of kinship and histories and stories that are specific to that totemic heritage. So, I mean, it's, it's a universal, I mean, it really is a, a remarkably universal human experience of reality until humans manage to deracinate themselves sufficiently from nature that it becomes alien or strange or quaint to them. But, you know, it's funny, when you listen to it, there was a time when um, Christian culture as a whole perfectly well understood sacred sites and lines of pilgrimage and the sp stories that went with them and the legends and the saints and the angels who had a specific association with a particular place and a particular history and particular stories and the way these things wove together to create a spiritual topography that was sort of the other side of the physical topography we inhabit, the inside or the inner truth of it, so that, that part of living the Christian life was this constant 
act trying to transform the world into the sort of spiritual map. And then what, you participate through real, also things like pilgrimage, you know, making the journey to San Diego to Compostela, you know. It's not, this is, it shouldn't seem strange to us or exotic. It should seem like uh, the way in which spiritual beings exist in a reality that is first and foremost born of spirit, uh, not simply of, of mechanistic matter, you know. Mm -hmm. It does amaze me that, that it is so universal. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier uh, my, my, my particular study and my rather haphazard and, and ultimately pathetic attempts to master one language, the Cheyenne, or uh, Tsitsitsa is the proper name. Cheyenne is uh, a name that was given them by the, uh, by, by, by the colonizers. Um, what that, that name means, Tsitsitsa, is really just, uh, sometimes it can be translated as the people, but it's more essential meaning is humankind, the, the human beings. And they understood themselves and do still, I mean, it's still a living culture, uh, the, the, especially in the Great Cheyenne Reservation that straddles the border of Montana and Wyoming. As um, human beings precisely, they, they have a certain privileged access to that name precisely because they still live uh, with this sense of, of humanity as part of a, a spiritual continuum with all of creation. Um, it, anyway, I mean, I, I'm yeah. beginning to ramble a bit, but no, uh, no, the point. It's, it's very relevant. Um, it does, re yeah, I don't want to go there too far, but it does remind me of Hopkins and Inscape, who, who saw the yeah. With a very Western mind, the inner form of rocks, he thought there was an inscape, which is really an inner spirit that was shaping all the nature that he looked at. Yeah. Anyway, won't go there now. Um, which you just did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we I did, we I won't did. go there, you know. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we just went there and came back. We did. <laughs> but we've got to, you know, live yeah, backwards right. somewhere. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> David, you did tell us a sad story. I'd like you to tell it again. Uh, when some people invited you to speak at a missionary conference, some Nepali uh, missionaries, and they had the oh well, no, they didn't ask me to speak, but it, but yeah, it was um, some years ago. Uh, a fellow who was in, uh, I guess, Presbyterian missions, but you must understand that he was an American, so he he came from the land where Christianity died. Um, he. Uh, and was replaced by something called Christianity, but it was that was a special American religion. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, he he was showing pictures of uh, of missions among displaced Tibetans in northern India and in Nepal, uh, and the sort of the before and after. Here they are pagans, and here they are as Christians. Well, as pagans, of course, they were. You know, supposedly, well, they were they were dressed in their traditional uh, garb. It was all very colorful, lovely stuff. As Christians, they were all sitting around in uh, in a room with bare walls, wearing business suits and ties. 
Because, of course, what they'd been taught was uh, American Christianity of a special Protestant kind, which is business. Um, that Jesus came to, uh, to, to teach us about corporate finance and gun rights. And, and, but I mean, there is a tragedy there because of course, why, why was preaching the gospel, why, why was that the same thing as total annihilation of cultural identity? to become Christian for them. I mean, and this is, repeats the original sin of many of the West uh, European min, uh, missionaries. Not the best of them. I want to point out that there's also an honorable history of missions, say, Jesuit missions that did, went just the opposite way, that led to the great conflicts, like the Chinese rights controversies between the Jesuits and the Franciscans and the Jesuits. There, not all of mission history was just that. Hmm. But unfortunately, too much of it was. Why would speak? Why would the you know enunciation of Christ, the one in whom all things hold together, and in whom and who is in some sense therefore one think reflected in all cultures and all things and all peoples? Why had it become in the minds of these, these missionaries the the you know the the mission was to annihilate Tibetanness. So, you know, to to become Christian is to cease to be what you were and what your parents were, and and what 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 uh, and anything that ties you to a place and a people. Uh, it is to become us. And in that sense, um, it was my first. It was the first time it ever really occurred to me just how perfidious <laughs> a lot of missionizing was. I mean, the degree in which it really was just a tactic of cultural power. Mm. Um, yeah. But um, now both Ray and Gabriel have mentioned just a couple of things I want to just finish on by going, you got, how are you all going? Can you, can you keep going a bit longer? Yeah. Right, uh, guys, you both mentioned two, two areas I would like to go into. One is dreaming or song lines, and the other is ceremony. Um, dreaming, uh, Ray, I like the way you say you don't like the word. Um, and you gave us another word, story. Can you just say that again so it sinks in for us, that we've taken that word dreaming. For us, that means something along the lines of, I think, fantasy. Um, can you just talk to us and give us what dreaming is again in, in the indigenous culture. Well, dreaming is everything. If, if we want to use that term, that terminology, it's an English word, <laughs> trying to describe something else. Uh, as Dave was saying too, there's another part of this puzzle that we struggle with as indigenous theologians, and that is the whole notion of replacement theology. And this is what, he, uh, what Dave was alluding to. That, we have to replace not just only our theology, but also our culture to become good Christians. And I don't think that's the gospel. Never has been, never will be. But that's the way in which Western theology has pushed indigenous peoples towards that kind of replacement theology. And for me, even the word Aboriginal is not, does not identify me. 
because it's a foreign language or a foreign category that's been placed upon me. And suddenly I'm somebody else or something else. But that's not me. I'm Gabi Gabi. That's who I am. I'm Gurangare. That's who I am. Now you may not recognize that, but I do. And the people that I'm connected to know who I am and how I am connected to them. One of my totems is, from my grandmother's side, from my father's side, is the kookaburra. Now in our belief system, it's the kookaburra. It only exists here in this, this east part of the, of the country, the kookaburra. He's the one who sings the day into existence because he's the first bird you hear. Now that's in our story. And so we always listen for that. And when I hear the kookaburra too, even as I travel around, it's just not only singing the day into existence, it's telling me something's happening. It's warning me. And I listen to that. I don't know if I should be saying all this stuff, but there you go. <laughs> In terms of the... So that's all part of this dreaming that we're talking about, or this story, because that kookaburra, those totems are a part of my story of who I am. They make me up as to who I am and how I'm connected to others and to other... The, the, you know, the trees, the land, all of that is my relatives. They're my relations. They're my family. And so when you, you know, blow up a Duke and Gorge or some other sacred site, you're destroying my story, my history, my memory, and all of the things that go with it. And so we have to try to figure out how do we then repair that and restore that knowledge back to it so that we can be who we are. And just remember when we, we were talking before about the uh, starting in the book of Genesis, the first chapter. You know, the last thing God created was mankind. He created the whole universe, the whole cosmos, everything. It was good. Then he put mankind in the middle of it to say, look after it, care for it, be custodians. We didn't. We didn't, and we still don't. And we as Christians or those who are followers of the teachings of Jesus are supposed to be the ones who stand up and say, hey, we've got to do this differently. We've got to do it by his laws, his teachings, but we don't. Um, yeah. What was I talking about anyways? You've done well dreaming and the, and the way that really story structures your whole relationship yes. with, with the yes. world. Yeah. And um, mm. uh, now Gabriel, so thank you for that. That was on dreaming and story. But Gabriel, I'd like to finish with you on, on ceremony. You began talking about this. Um, and can you talk, particularly the way I think you said your father had, it was a sacramental thing. Can you take us into some of the ceremonies and the world of the sacrament, sacramentalizing yes. that, you, you, that was part of your heritage? Yes. Um... As you know, there are many rituals uh, and ceremonies that are performed uh, in our culture. The one that we particularly spoke about is uh, uh, the ceremonies around our harvest time. Uh, and again, that's led by our totems. Uh, 
uh, in our language we call it I bow down to Nar. I bow down to Nar. There's a, a time of harvest and time of plentiful. Uh, first fruits, when the land produces, and out in the sea, uh, the clans, uh, they gather, and it happens seasonally, uh, according to the constellations, uh, which direct us, uh, and then we come together, and when we have this sacred meal, so uh, all the edible to totems, the clan people are not allowed to eat their totems, uh, but during this feast, you're allowed to, uh, uh, you're allowed to eat them. Uh, but it happens in such a way where uh, there's a ceremony of um, and, and dancing of the major totem that comes into where everybody is gathered and uh, singing and dancing. Uh, and the major totem comes in basically in the form of a dancer uh, with a big crocodile on his head, his face covered. Um, and he dances and there's a mat in the middle. And he actually goes down to the mat and he lays down on the mat with a crocodile on his head, the major totem. And then the smaller clan groups, the minor clans, they bring in all the all the produce, all the, all the food, and they place it around, uh, around the crocodile. And then you have one of the elders from the major tribe, our tribe, Wagadagam. They would stand up and they would talk um, on behalf of the whole tribal nation and the people. Uh, and the whole focus Again, I will mention is about that communion. It's, it's about that communal strength. I think those are the words that I, you know, I mentioned, and, and the and the solidarity around the strength of everybody identifying with what they will eat, um, and everything becomes sacred: the food uh, and the gathering, and uh, and that gives you that, uh, well, you know. Uh, uh, the strength and, and, and all that spiritual uh, uh, I, I don't know I'm searching for words here but that uplifting and then people uh, start to sing and celebrate uh, that community uh, of coming together yeah. well it, when I heard you talk about that the phrase that came to my mind was actually I think a phrase in a book about Maximus by von Balthasar who, on the cosmic liturgy uh, where Maximus had this sense of the entire cosmos united in celebration. Mm -hmm. uh, David, could you just finish with us a little bit about the, you know, Maximus and his vision of cosmic liturgy? Just give us some of your thoughts. As much as it's very much the same as what, what Ray was saying, that. Uh, his understanding of the gospel was that, that, that creation as a whole was uh, uh, is theophany. It's the manifestation of God in, in uh, again, infinite varieties of beauty. Um, and that, that humanity's unique role within this and being 
he called it the, the, the role of the Mythorios, the, the borderland between the spiritual and, and, and the, the physical, was as a kind of priesthood in which humanity was to offer up the praise of, to, to be the voice of creation, to offer up the praise of all things to God in articulate and rational worship. You know, he is that. Uh, uh, and that in failing that, high vocation, all things were enslaved to death and violence. And for Maximus, this leads to great, certain great estrangements, the estrangement of heaven from earth, of paradise from, from nature, of humanity from creation, of man from woman, of humankind from God. These, these are the great divisions, all of which are healed in Christ who uh, restores the unity of all these things by retelling the original story, so to speak, as the incarnate one, reordering all things to their proper ends again, uh, so that ultimately, and, and it's an image that's very popular in the Eastern Orthodox theological world, that the ultimate destiny of creation is to become like the burning bush filled with the glory of God and yet unconsumed. Um, and that, uh, that image of cosmic liturgia, uh, cosmic liturgy, cosmic worship, uh, for Maximus is, is, is absolutely central to understanding both who human beings are and who human beings are in Christ. Um, yeah, that's a really, it's such a powerful vision, um, mm. but one that takes a lot of absorbing. But I think the, the resonances between this wonderful patristic father um, uh, from the, you know, 600, five, late 500s. When did he live exactly? Well, you want me to pull out Wikipedia here? Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I actually almost did this because I realized I had completely forgotten what uh, Maximus's dates exactly were, uh, so now I have to look it up. It's very embarrassing, but it's a great, <laughs> it's a great opportunity for comedy, uh, if I could make a joke. Um, but there was a time I could have given you his exact dates. We're all getting older, David. Yeah, I know. 580 to 662, so that... Uh, yeah, and for those who don't know what a saint the man was, explain why he was called the confessor. Oh, well, yeah, you know, the, the great controversies that divided Christendom after the councils of Nicaea and Constantinople were the councils of, about Christology, about how to understand the relationship of humanity uh, and divinity in Christ. I, not to be too specific, Maximus, along with uh, Pope Martin, uh, Maximus actually had to shelter in the West for over 20 years, um, refused to give up on the notion that Christ possessed a fully human will as well as a divine will. And you know, it's very technical. Nonetheless, he uh, was so, he, in refusing to, he was in, in uh, he and the Pope were both arrested by uh, the emperor, and who at that time was uh, resident in Byzantium, or now Istanbul, 
Uh, and as a result of his continued refusal to uh, yield on this point of the absolute full and true humanity of Christ, his, he had his right hand hacked off and his tongue torn out uh, in the gentle Christian way of correction <laughs> that was... Um, but, I mean, he's a confessor. I mean, he died, he died of his injuries not long after in exile. Um, and that's why he's known as the confessor, because, uh, because he uh, would not alter his profession of faith in the, in the fullness of the, the uh, of the completeness of the incarnation of God as human being. So. Well, I'm glad they don't settle doctrinal disputes quite like that today. Um, so. Actually, you know, give us time <laughs> in America, you know. Um, at, least it, uh, at least it clarified things. I mean, you really had to be committed. Um, and it only took a generation afterwards before he was named a saint. And, uh, yeah, the emperor ultimately lost uh, because imperial policy uh, didn't survive... Uh, but yes, uh, and um, he was. But he was also a very saintly man in every other sense too. So, yeah. yeah, a great man. Well, um, I think you'll agree that's been a fascinating journey. I hope you found it so. Mm. Um, really, we've had two lines of story from our indigenous brethren, and then right back in the sixth century, 7th century, with one of the great figures of the Christian church, Maximus the Confessor. Uh, we could go on to another section, which we won't, um, but it's worthwhile just at least foreshadowing these are very live conversations. I think they're live for us with our, you know, white reformed theology to keep on exploring a bigger picture of God and creation. But I think for our indigenous brethren as well, there's uh, finding ways in which to more fully ground the churches you're building or the fellowships you're building on the old story is a very, very live issue for you yes. at the moment. Yes. Amen. Mm. You mind if I close with the Lord's Prayer? Uh, from I, my perspective, from, from an I think you should do that and uh, Lisa, you're going to make your announcement after that, or would you write? Mm. Yeah, you close with the Lord's Prayer, then Lisa will just uh, say a final word. I'll do it in English, but we were, we, when we, I'm not going to say it in my language, but we have a problem with the Lord's Prayer. And the problem is in this passage which says, <clears throat> Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now consider. Aboriginal people, we never had a king. We never had any chiefs. We were governed by our elders. And some of them came and they put, you know, rings around us to make us into kings so they could recognise some kind of leadership amongst us. So just imagine this, the only king and the kingdom that we knew was England, the British Empire. And here we are praying this prayer and saying, well, thy kingdom come. Why do we want that kingdom? It's going to come and destroy us. And so we had to change the language to this in English, okay, from my language. We on earth will dream 
the same as you dream in heaven. And so the prayer would read this way, our father or our grandfather in heaven, your name stands alone. Father, grandfather, please come to our land and to our people. Come to lead us. We on all the earth will dream. The same as you dream in heaven. Please give us our food for today. Please release us when we do wrong. And we will release others when they do wrong to us. Don't let us go down the evil path but rescue us from the evil one. We ask, Father, because everything belongs to you alone. Yours alone the land. Yours alone the power. Yours alone the shining light, now and for all time. And we all said, Amen. Amen. On behalf of everyone here, thank you so much to all of you. That has been an extraordinary eye-opening journey. I certainly have new eyes to see our First Nation cultures, Aboriginal and Islander, and new eyes to see the scriptures, new eyes to see God. It is a bigger vision of who God is. And David, uh, is speaking at other events. I think there's some brochures up the back tomorrow night on suffering and then we have uh, a conference, not this coming weekend, but the next weekend, more on Maximus the Confessor and other patristics. Who knew? I had no idea these connections between patristic fathers and Indigenous cultures. So thank you very much for coming this evening. Don't have time for questions. It would be a very long night, I think. Uh, but there is, Kelly has provided this amazing supper up the back if you'd like to have some with native uh, fruit and uh, there's a themed supper up there. So please stay and you might have to process tonight, discuss it, <laughs> talk it through what have been your takeaways. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much to our panel. That has been extraordinary. Thank <laughs> you.